We are going to enter into um, 1 Corinthians. We're jumping back in. We've got just a couple more weeks. Okay, I promise we're going to finish before Christmas. All right? Uh, we're, we're, going to, we're going to walk through a couple other things. But in case you weren't here last week, quick review. In chapter 12, Paul is addressing the early church, the church of Corinth, and he's addressing them on a whole lot of issues throughout this book study that we've been in. Things that are dividing them, things that are causing friction within inside the church, things that are bringing the world into the church instead of church impacting the world. And one of those areas that he wanted to address for three chapters is spiritual gifts. And how were they gifted? How did God create them? How did God equip them to be used for his glory? And so there was a lot of jockeying for position of, well, my gift is more important than your gift, and your gift is not important, it's my gift. And Paul says, listen, some of you claim that you may have a weaker spiritual gift? He says, no, they're indispensable. Uh, And so he's trying to help everybody to see the spiritual gifts are given for the growth and the maturity of the entire body of Christ, the church. So every gift, every gift that you've been given um, has been given for the spiritual growth of our church, which will in turn impact our community. We gave you a couple questions. Um, Am I using this gift to make Jesus known or myself the way that God has gifted me? Am I using that to impact others? Is this gift being used to grow and mature others? Is using this gift bringing my unity to my local body of believers? Am I growing other believers through the gifts that God has given me? Or have I just taken my my gifts and gone home, right? Uh, No, to use those. So this entire chapter, and then he comes to what I said was almost a to be continued. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 31, he says this, and I will show you. So he's given us this whole explanation in chapter 12. And then at the end, he says, and I will show you a more excellent way in the next chapter that we call the love chapter. Now, you've often heard this chapter. Um, You've heard it at weddings. Fine, great, not intended for weddings. It's intended for a group of divided believers who can't get along, who are taking their gifts, they're divided on certain theological matters, and Paul is trying to bring them back together. So imagine that this love that he's talking about is really aimed at how we care for each other and then how that impacts the church. Now, we have a very poor view of love in our society. Um, in this culture, they had three, sometimes four words that described different types of love. So if you were speaking to someone, you didn't just say love, you would say a, a different word for love. And so we just have love. And Our love is often determined and developed by the songs that we sing. Let's just have a little fun, all right? See if you can fill in some of the lines with me as we go. Love is a mini splendored thing, all right? Love lifts us up where we... Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, I'm up here. This is uh, not a one-way street, right? This is a both-way. Um, first service, 8.30, they were alive and well, right? And it was raining on them too. So, to, so join in with me. Participate with me. Let's, let's, let's love each other, all right? Uh, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Some of you generationally are going, you still haven't hit my generation, all right? What's love got to do with it, all right? Um, and, Some of these are really hard to identify when I'm not singing them for you, okay? And I, I will always love you, Whitney Houston, right? Love potion number nine, kind of a dangerous thought. I just called to say, I love you. Can you feel the 
love tonight. Um, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that, all right? Now, my playlist for love cannot be complete without Lionel Richie. May not be your, your jam, but love some Lionel Richie, all right? Um, and let me, just, let me just mock one of my favorite guys, all right? Hello, is it me you're looking for? Just, just. I don't know what's funny. I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your smile. If this is a married couple, it's not been more than 24 hours, right? <laughs> You're all I've ever wanted. My arms are open wide. Because you know just what to say. And you know just what to do. So let me start by saying, I love you. Whew. Right here in the heart. Or we let movies define them. I won't even start, right? We let movies define our picture of love. And then we just have this one word for love. It's love. And we use this word and we use it, I love pizza. I love my spouse. I love Jesus, right? And it's the same word. We've got it on t-shirts and we've got it on bumper stickers and, and, and all this. The warning for Paul to the early church is that they had an incomplete view of love and they were not allowing love to infiltrate the discussion of the spiritual gifts. So it's really important that we don't pull chapter 13 out and go, oh, this is just about love. No, this is about love and its impact on the church and how they were discussing certain things and how they were handling each other and how they were caring for each other. So grasp that if you can, that this is not a mushy, gushy, feel-good, emotionally driven love. Instead, well, one author says this, the word agape, which is where this word love comes in chapter 13, has very little to do with emotion. It indicates love which is deliberate. It is by an act of will. It chooses its object, and through thick and thin, regardless of the attractiveness of the object concern, goes on loving continually and eternally. Oof. Let's go back to love, sweet love, right? Agape love is not, hear this, it is not for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of others. How do I love you more? How do I care for you more? So let's read. Now, uh, as we walk through this, let's read this, this beautiful gift of love. Verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. You see how, if you were here last week, he talked about spiritual gifts of, of tongues and of prophecy and of knowledge and wisdom. You can now see this is not detached. It's built in as a part of. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And this word for all is complete. 100%. If I have all understanding of mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Translation, great sermon, no love, nothing. Noise. 
if I understand, did you hear what he said there? If I understand all the mysteries of this world, if I have all the faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, nothing. Church of Corinth, if you have all the gifts and all the abilities and you're more gifted, at least you think you are, and you have this public gift and you have this quiet gift, if you have all the gifts, but you have not love, you got nothing. Giving without love, it's just a ceremony. Persecution without love gains nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. I want you to grasp how big of a picture he's painting here. He's not just tossing out, again, comparing the love that we have for each other to the love we have for our favorite food. In the public eye, the church of Corinth, they are self-consumed, they are prideful, followers of Christ trying to figure all this out. They are saying things like, you know what? I'm more gifted than the next guy or I've, I give more than the next group or I have more education than the other person or I have been gifted to speak in tongues and interpret tongues or you may have gifts and somebody may say, listen, I got gifts and nobody even sees my gifts, therefore I'm greater than them. And he says, no, if it's without love, it is nothing. So if I could just lean into us for a moment. If you're a guest with us this morning, you can just use this as an accountability for, for, for who we are as a congregation. God has placed us as a congregation in a very unique position. We are, we are debt-free, um, praise the Lord, have been for several years. Um, we've got uh, just a group of talented people who serve and volunteer our church in, in a gazillion ways on a Sunday. We have a beautiful campus that we love that God has given us. We have creativity and the willingness to, to try crazy things, um, planting a tree in the middle of a field out back, and we have the creativity to reach people. We have people going on mission trips, and a team just returned last weekend from Florida. Um, we have a team uh, le leaving. Some of you are like, I didn't see the publicity for this one because I would have gone. We have a team leading this Tuesday for Hawaii. Must be tough, right? Right? Seven-day trip. That's a quick trip, right? We have gifted teachers. We have gifted leaders. But those measurements, listen to me, church, those measurements, they're important and they're valuable. But without love, what does he say they are? They're a clanging symbol. I thought long and hard about just having a symbol up here and just trying to read this. And I thought better of it in the moment. But you know what you do? If all, the, if all we had this morning was a drummer and all he did was clang the symbol all morning, you go, I man, I'm getting out of here. I can't even drown that out. I can't, I, I can't oh gosh, I can just, I just. This is what he's saying. He says, love and our relationships and our care for others, our relationship with others without love is a clanging symbol. And what do we do with a clanging symbol? We ignore it or we get away from it. What does the world do of a church that doesn't love? It ignores it or gets away from it. And that's sadly what we are seeing, not love without parameters, love without boundaries. We're going to see that in just a moment. So as we enter into this Christmas season, please understand that, that what we're about to celebrate is not simply uh, the tree and the hot chocolate and the food and the vendors and all those different types of things. Those are incredible. We're going to do all those things. But Christmas, here's what it does. It points us to the arrival of the perfect example of love, Jesus Christ. 
This, this is a reminder for us as we're moving into and you're putting up your tree and you're doing all these things. What you are celebrating is the perfect gift of love, Jesus Christ. So our pursuit in ministry and maturity is to learn to love like Jesus. It's not the pursuit of saying, well, I'm the best, I'm better than, I'm more gifted than, well, I, I give this, I do this. No, it is saying, am I learning to love like Jesus? Am I becoming more loving like Jesus? It is often the pursuit of the public gifts, though, the accolades, but Jesus shows us surrender. He shows, shows us submission. So a couple questions on the front end um, for us to guide our discussion this morning. Do we consider love essential to our ministry? Do we consider love essential to our ministry? Do we consider love to be the most crucial aspect of our relationship to each other? Are we more impressed with our church resume and our fact sheets of our personal lives than we are with our effectiveness in conveying love? And maybe in just in one statement instead of a question, love is not simply the way we serve, it is the why we serve. It's not simply the way that we do it. We, we just want to be loving. No, it's why do we do it? We do it out of the love that Christ has shown us. So let's look at how he fills up this love. So if, if you were just to imagine a, a balloon and, and it just has the word love written on it, Paul is going to keep inserting characteristics and qualities of love for us to fill out this picture of agape love. So we're going to walk through um, 15 sermon points. Oh, man, it's raining so hard outside. You don't care, right? You're not going anywhere. There's no ball game, all right? So Paul is going to describe and outline this love for us. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I don't want to go through the whole list and read all the way through it and lose you, so let's, let's start there. Um, so Paul's going to give us these, these outline of what love is. First one he says, love is, read that with me. Oh, Paul, really? Could you start us with something other than patience? Patience is that quality that we want. Like if you're sitting in here, you go, man, I'd like to be more patient. But in the moment, in your car, when somebody cuts in front of you, you don't go, Lord, I just want to be more patient. No, I just want to run them over, right? If you're being really honest with maybe it's just me, it's not my notes, probably should leave it out for the future, all right? Patience is an engaging quality in that it's something that when I need it, when I don't need it, I want it. But then when I want it and I, or I greatly need it, I don't necessarily want it. I don't want to be patient. Now, this word patient here is a little bit different than the word patient um, and how it's used in other parts of Scripture. This word patient is patient with people. Oh, now he's really getting at it, right? Um, remember who he's addressing. He's addressing how does the church love and care for each other? How do they exemplify the gifts? How do they care for each other? So he's saying, how are you patient with people? Patience is marked by endurance. It is giving others space to grow, to mature. You endure personal wrongs without retaliating. 
You allow people around you to love, to grow, to make mistakes, and to lovingly walk with them. You're patient. Love is kind. Kindness is patience in action. Uh, Kindness is the patience that we desire. It comes from the word useful. Kindness we see in a couple places in Scripture, pretty amazing places we see in Scripture. When Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus was kind to Peter. When Jesus is all of a sudden placed with the adulterous woman in front of him, Jesus is convicting, but he is also kind. When Jesus sits at the Last Supper and he has the disciples with him and Judas, who was about to go betray him, on that night, Jesus was kind and washed his feet. It's love in action. The place where kindness and patience are most often put to the test is your house. Is it not? Because all bets are off, all... uh, All hiding is off. It's really who you are. It's where patience and kindness are tested. Do we exemplify patience with our children and kindness? It's a lot easier to preach in this service because my kids aren't in this one, right? Love is not jealous. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. This word means to desire eagerly or to envy Um, It's used in Scripture with both. It's a positive and a negative, depending on where it's being placed and how it's being used. But the jealous person wants what they have, and they want what other people have for themselves. And literally, jealousy says, if I can't have it, then I don't want you to be happy with it either. How does this translate? Well, if you have the gift, if I don't have the gift of prophecy, and you've got the gift of prophecy, then I don't want you to have it. I don't want you to have the gift of teaching. I don't want you to have the gift of preaching. I don't want you. If I can't have it, you can't have it. Love is not jealous. Then we see this trio here. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant or inflated. Love is not rude. I read through those four, five, and six. You're totally surprised that we're already through six, all right? I read through those three, boastful, arrogance, rudeness. Those infiltrate my thought that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. My wife reminds me often that that is not the case. And in many of those moments where that comes out, I'm being boastful, I'm being arrogant, I'm being rude. Jealousy that we saw, the third one, is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Arrogance and jealousy puts others down. And being rude builds us up and puts others down. Love is not selfish. It does not insist on its own way. It does not demand its own rights. One pastor, Alan Redpath, said this, the secret of every discord in Christian homes and communities and churches that that we seek our way and our glory. Another theologian wrote this, if you can cure selfishness, then you can replant the Garden of Eden. You have to go back and think about that one for a little bit. Selfishness is the root problem of a human race. It's the opposite of love. It's self 
Sacrificing is the gift of love, not selfishness, which again points to the church, the points of church, back Corinth, whatever their name is, Corinth, back to Jesus. Hey, you guys, I want to turn you back to Jesus. He's the example of love. He's the example of faithfulness. He's the example of grace. Keep turning back to Jesus. Love is not irritable. Your translations may say angry. The Greek word here is not to be easily provoked. Love does not have a quick trigger. Some people make everyone around them. You, you, you know those people that make everybody around them kind of tiptoe. They're like walking on eggshells like, Ooh, I don't want to say this. I don't want to do this because I know they're going to explode, right? I was at a college football game a couple weekends ago, and uh, two rows in front of me on the end of the aisle, there was this um, irritable gentleman. Don't know his name. Um, I, I, I imagine this was not just game time temper because his wife left halfway through. I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a good, good ride home. My guess is he doesn't care um, because, man, he just kept on yelling. He was very angry, and, and you know, kind of I'm going, I, I just, even when I walk down the aisle, I'm like, I want to move away from him. I don't want to step close to him. I, I don't want to experience anything that he's got. One little thing, and boom. Now, you know people like that. That may describe you. But some people, if you were to approach them, and you would say, hey, can we talk about this anger issue? And they may say, yeah, I got a bad temper. I got a quick fuse. But I just got to get it all out. And then it'll be over. You just described anger. And you also just described what a bomb does. You throw a bomb out and what does it do? It explodes. Well, it's over. No big deal, right? Yeah, but it does damage that goes on for. On and on and on and on and on. It impacts everything around it. When you're angry, we're usually not very loving, right? They don't usually go hand in hand. When we lose our tempers, it's been said, we lose everything. Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. It means to store up. If you're an accountant in the room, if you're a math person in the room and, and you like accounting and those type of things, this is your word, okay? Um, to not be resentful, to store up. It means a mathematically adding to. It means tallying up. We do this, right, in our heads. We don't do it out loud or we don't have a chart. If you do, we really need to get rid of the chart, okay? Um, she offended me, check. He offended me, check. So here's what happens then I feel as if I have permission to wrong them because then we're even, right? We're never leaving here. This rain, we're just going to keep on going, right? I'm just going to slow down. No, we've got another service. But resentfulness is tallying up the mistakes of someone. And this is so true in church, is it not? Some of you have experienced this in church. Man, I thought, I thought we asked for forgiveness. I thought we worked through that, and you're still holding to that. In marriage and relationships, I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. That was like 74 years ago. Like, how did you bring that back up? Like, we're tallying it up. We're keeping the score. Halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through, just kind of want to redirect us. Love changes our character. It shapes our integrity. We can see that. Love changes our character. It begins to shape us. It begins to uh, put us in different conversations and different handlings of ourselves. And it shapes our integrity. What we do when no one is looking. 
Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Paul is saying, hey, church, you, you don't rejoice when your brother in Christ falls into sin. You don't rejoice from someone in the community that you know, that you love, makes another bad choice. You don't rejoice. Instead, we take joy when there's repentance. We take joy when there's brokenness that leads to forgiveness. Because this is the example that we've seen from Jesus. Now let me give you a really trivial example of this, um, how we do this in our world and how it kind of slides into some of our relationships to not rejoice at the wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. Um, we, again, trivial example, but I think you can understand and maybe you can um, be a part of this here this morning. Friday was a really bad day if you were a Carolina fan, right? It was a great day if you were a Duke fan, wasn't it? You know Why? Because Carolina lost. Now, that is not an eternal example for sure because those games really don't matter. Sorry if that offends, but it's just the reality. Um, but here's, and, and I'm a Carolina fan, so, you know, bad day, big deal, slept great, all right? Um, and so here's the reality, though. We jokingly make those thoughts. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't my team that lost twice. Right? Well, at least it wasn't my spouse who. Well, at least it wasn't my kid who. You see, this is where this gets really personal. This is really where it fills up this balloon, this, this picture of love. It says it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't get excited when somebody else's family member falls or when they fall to difficulty or to sin. No, it rejoices in the truth. In the book of John, it says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Love weeps when others weep, and it rejoices when others rejoice. Whether in 8050 or 82,022, whether in Corinth or Davidson County, this requires self-examination. Love bears all things. The twelfth, love bears all things. This wording here to bear is to protect by covering. Love doesn't broadcast the problems of others. It covers them. It protects them. Love doesn't run down others with jokes, uh, with sarcasm, or with put-downs. It covers them. It defends the character of another person as much as possible within the limits of truth. Love will not lie about weaknesses, but nor will it deliberately expose them. Listen to that. Love will not celebrate someone's weaknesses, nor will it deliberately expose expose or emphasize them. Love bears. It protects. It covers. Love believes all things. One question can summarize this one. Do we think the best about others or the worst? We live in a world that teaches us everybody you see outside this room, think the worst. Everything going on, think the worst. Love believes all things. 
Love hopes all things. Love rests on the promises and the faithfulness of God. It, but it, it has a hope and it doesn't expect another believer to fail. And in doing so, it equips us to love. So some statements of love hopes all things might be this. I, I know you can do this because God is able. God has moved on your behalf before. He will move on your behalf again. I'm hoping, I'm praying, I'm believing in you. This is not a blind hope without facing the realities and what people are up against, but the opposite of this hope is pessimism and negativity. And don't we have enough of that? The opposite of hope is pessimism. It's negativity. Love endures all things. This is a military word meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy. It has the idea of standing under and through a trial. It is persevering through difficulties. It doesn't back away from problems when caring and loving for someone else. What a description. What a complete description. What a challenge for the church of Corinth. What a challenge for us today. Not to say, man, I know somebody else that I work with that's not a believer in Jesus. They need to know what love is. No, Paul is saying, let's let the church learn it first. 2,000 years later, let's let the church learn it, relearn it first. Let's be reacclimated to this picture of love. And then he gives us these last five verses, and I want to give you three little headings that go with verses 8 through, um, 8 through 13. Love is permanent, love is complete, and love is supreme. Love is permanent, love is complete, and love is supreme. And again, remember why he's teaching them this, because some of them are really proud of their gifts and how good they can use them. And so he's going to show them something here, that your gifts have an ending. They're not perfect. That your gifts are not fully equipped. They're incomplete. That your love is not supreme, that God's is. Verse 8, love never ends. It's permanent. As for prophecies, as which they were arguing about, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, so there we see love is permanent. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We're, we're, they're prophesying about little moments, not a complete picture of humanity. But when the perfect comes, the partial is past, will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, um, really quickly because we've got a second here. For, for now we see in a mirror dimly. If you do a little bit of research on your own and realize that um, the Corinthians, they made their mirrors out of really, really shiny tin. Okay, so they're not your, your, your no steam mirror in your shower, okay? Um, they're not perfectly clear. They're dim. And so they would have gone, oh, yeah, I get that. I mean, every time I look in a mirror, it's a dim picture. But we're gonna, he's saying we're going to see it through Jesus Christ, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I, know sh I shall know fully, even as I have been known, fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love that is permanent. Love that is complete. Love that is supreme. Love will make us others-centered instead of self-centered. That's what it comes down to. 
Love will make us other-centered instead of God's uh, self-centered. Is love essential in your ministry? Is love evident in your relationships? Does love lead your responses to others? Is your love consistent? Do you know the love of Jesus Christ? Do you know the love of Christ? The Corinthians are being prepared here. How do you love your family? How do you love your enemies? How do you love your friends? How do you care for each other? How do you love the person who has this outward gift and you have something that is inward? How do you love someone who may appear to have more gifts than you, someone who's more talented than you and your perspective? What does Paul keep doing? He keeps coming back to the attributes of Jesus. Jesus Christ was the perfect example of love. Self-sacrificing, surrendering. Now we started by poking fun at some, some songs that we all enjoy. I came across these lyrics from a song that really encapsulates love. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain themes that charm charm me the most. I sacrifice them through his blood. See, from his head, listen to this, his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down on the cross through his body and blood being poured out, sorrow and love poured down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns composed so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small? Here it is. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Going back to those words that that Justin spoke earlier on of do we really sing and do we really rejoice in the things that we're singing and take claim of those? Do we really, when we come to passages like this, lay a hold of those and say, God, who in my life do I just need to put a target of love on? They're the most miserable, they're, they're the most just pessimistic person I know. Target, love. They're the most difficult. They, they've, they've created friction. I'm going to put target of love. And for this context, what about somebody as a fellow believer? They may go to another body of believers, another church, another relationship that you have. Put the target of love. Not the love that comes natural to us, that's emotional, that's frivolous. But a love that is so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. My all.